Welcome to Life of the School, episode 77. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Lisa Niesman. Lisa is the Upper School Science Department Chair at Bay Ridge Prep in Brooklyn, New York. In addition to serving as department chair, Lisa has taught a variety of courses at Bay Ridge Prep and introduced new science courses, including the Science Research and Design course and and an animal behavior class. Lisa has also played an active role in the AP Biology community, working as an AP Biology exam item writer, as a reader, as a table leader, and as a question leader. She earned her EdD in science education from Columbia University in May 2017 and has served as an adjunct professor at the Teachers College of Columbia University. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for letting me take a few minutes out of your summer um, as we are rapidly winding down summer. I guess for us right now, we're recording it. It's still July, but (laughs) this is going to come out. And like, I don't know about you. I don't know. When do you go back to school? Do you know? We go back very end of August. So I still have about a month. Yeah. So when this comes out, we will like be like less than two weeks <laughs> to, ah. to, to go. So it'll be, it'll be right there. In fact, I think I have teacher meetings scheduled like the days after this come out, um, some already ones booked to, to be back in talking there. And then the official well, teacher meetings start the week after that. So let's enjoy uh, the summer that we have now. Yes. Yeah. And you've been, uh, you've been traveling, enjoying your summer. I have indeed. I just got back from a trip to Brisbane, Australia. Wow. Wow. And so that was, was it just like fun family vacation or fun personal vacation? vacation Coupled with exploring. So my sister-in-law moved out there about a year and a half ago. So this was the meeting of the cousins. My son hadn't met her kids, but also some exploring rainforests. We got to see a platypus in the wild, which was very exciting. (laughs) Yeah. And platypus is strangely linked to a lot of your uh, online presence. Uh It's very true. I I very much enjoy animals that break rules. So the platypus being a a mammal that lays eggs with the the venom, all sorts of interesting things. So it sort of became our class mascot. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Yeah. um, And I I was just thinking that I, you know, I twisted your arm a little bit when we were at the read um, to get you on here. Um, (laughs) And I was thinking this morning as I sat down, I was like, that feels like it was forever ago. Like, it really does. And a lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, when this comes out, it'll be two months, but we're like a month and a half since we were in Kansas City. But it really does feel like it was so, so long ago that we were there. Um, it's amazing how fast uh, time flies when you when you leave Kansas City. <laughs> Kansas City is a bubble. It's yes. the people that you are there with are your best friends, your confidants, your colleagues for two weeks a year, and you are completely engrossed. And then you fly away and you kind of forget that it exists. And then you come right back to it. And it's like, no time has passed. It's yeah. an anomaly of space time, I think. Yeah. It's uh, the, one of the funnier things about that is there are literally people, uh, you know, Mike Murray in particular, who is uh, a bio teacher in Massachusetts, you know, we don't teach that far apart. Like I literally see him like 
twice a year. I'll like randomly run into him at some workshop in the middle of the school year. And then when we're at the read, we hang out all the time. Right. You're best <laughs> friends at the read. And then otherwise you're acquaintances. It's- yeah. Well, we, we like text and stuff, but like, we are not that far apart. Like we could easily get together, <laughs> yeah. but our, our jobs make it really hard to do that. Um, and, well, and that's just it. In Kansas City, real life pauses and you yeah. have time to connect with all of these other, you know, fellow AP bio nerds and, and friends and people that we love. And then you go back to the real world and you have your job and time and family and all of those things. And it, it just gets harder. Yeah, it is a it is a strange nerd village. That's I think a good way of thinking about it. It's like Fabulous. if there was a if there was a world where like only bio teachers worked together and lived together and shopped together. Yeah, it's amazing. Nerd it's village a, is going to be my new my new catchphrase. I love that. Yeah, it's it is a very funny uh funny group together. All right, well, I have uh, pinned you down and got here, and um, you were like happy to talk about being like a an, an AP question leader, but I'm going to ask you about your teaching. So. Um, of course. I'm happy to talk about all of it. So uh, I want to start where I like to start with everybody. And that's how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Um, so the, the shorter version is that I had a phenomenal AP biology teacher when I was in high school. Um, Mary Margaret Welch and Mercer Island, Washington was inspirational and formative to me. Um, I experienced biology in a way that I didn't really realize was possible in her class. Um, So I had always loved science and the natural world. And I had traveled with the Museum of Natural History. I'd been to the Galapagos, um, at the Galapagos Islands the summer before my senior year of high school, which just amazed me in a way that that I don't really think words can describe. Um, You know, looking into the eyes of a sea lion as you're snorkeling with it, it it changes you. And so at that point, I knew that I wanted to do something science related. So I enrolled in AP Bio and Mary Margaret showed me just how everything can be connected, Um, showed me just how you can study biology, but you can do biology. There's a difference between learning about it and actually doing it. Our course actually wasn't called AP Bio. It was called Biomedical Research, but we followed the AP curriculum and we took the AP exam. (laughs) But I think by changing the name of it, it allowed her the the seeming flexibility to deviate a little bit and have us do a lot more project-based things than I think the AP curriculum had at the time. Mm. And and that really, it, it showed me what it was like to be a scientist, to do science as opposed to to studying it, which until then, you know, in my other science classes in high school, um, it had been. And so, you know, I think going forward, when I looked at career options and different paths, I didn't fall right into teaching. I worked in a law firm for a couple of years. I actually did science research for the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology out of Berkeley. But when I looked back at it, the things that I I really loved all involved teaching or talking about or inspiring other people to see the natural world the way I did, to see the wonder and the beauty and the awesome amazement and and so it, it was once I came to that decision, it really felt like a natural um, landing point for me. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to dive into the path a little bit more. So you're in high school, you're AP biology, you're loving biology. 
you go to college? Where do you go to college? And I went to Carleton College in Mm -hmm. Northfield, Minnesota, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a second home. I toured a lot of colleges and I looked at a lot of different places and I knew I wanted to play division three tennis and study biology. Those were sort of my two, my, the two things that I was looking for. Um, and what it boiled down to was Carleton, you know, it was small liberal arts school, um, phenomenal academics, but it was a home. You know, I was flying away from Seattle where I grew up. I was flying away from my parents and everything that I knew and I needed a new home. And so Carlton and the professors, my coaches, my friends, my teammates, it, they became a new, a new family to me. And so because of that, I really felt able to, to open up, to be vulnerable, to learn, to explore, to make mistakes, to travel. I studied abroad in Paris while I was there, but really I was in the biology building. Like I did other, it's a liberal arts school, but I stayed as close to the biology building as humanly possible. Um, I just, I ate it up. Every class that I took was more interesting than the last. There was no aspect that felt forced or, you know, people say like, Oh, organic chemistry. I liked that too. Um, I struggled with it like most people do, but I, it was part of it. It was part of the bigger picture. And I, I loved getting below the surface and really diving into content. All right. So, um, yeah, I, I loved organic chemistry. I think that's one of those things that's weird about me. I, I called it 3D puzzles. I mean, it kind of is. <laughs> and it's so satisfying when you get there. Yeah. It was the first course for me that didn't come completely naturally. So I actually had to put in mental effort and studying, which I didn't really know what that word meant until that point in my academic career. Um, but man, was it satisfying when you got it. Yeah, it was It was definitely one of those classes for me where I, it was almost like I felt like I had got a translation book that nobody yeah. else got because um, <laughs> they would the professor would put like a series of reactions up on the board and be like this happens and this happens and this happens and i'll be like yep and i'm nodding along and i look around and everybody looks totally lost and i was like yeah, can you share that translation book with the rest of the world <laughs> yeah well it's actually I, I joke it was like the first time i actually ended up tutoring anybody was when i took organic huh. chemistry mm-hmm. um what it was the first time i was helping other people like unpack knowledge and like yeah. I had to figure out like why I can see something but somebody else can't that was the first experience I ever had like in my path to becoming a teacher um yep. organic chemistry was a huge part of that for me because I had friends who like I had to you know figure out how they were seeing the world that was different than me and then help unpack what they were seeing so that they could figure out how things work together um it was a it was, teacher. Yeah, that's the, that's what teaching is. And it was the first time I ever exactly. did something like that. So so you go and you graduate from Carleton and you, you threw a few different things out there that you <laughs> did. So you somehow end up on the West Coast in a yeah. lab. So, so what's your path when you leave Carleton and how does that eventually get you into a classroom in New York? Um, <laughs> you, you've left, there's a lot of breadcrumbs out, out of this pathway yeah. right now. <laughs> um, so I graduated from Carleton. Um, I actually graduated a semester early so that I could work a field season out in Carmel Valley, California. Mm-hmm. So I was working with a professor, Dr. Walter Koenig um, out of Berkeley. He's now up at um, Cornell, the lab of ornithology but he was working on a project with cooperative breeding in acorn woodpeckers. 
And so I ended up working that first field season. Um, I worked with him out in Carmel and I did field nest watches and I studied birds and I lived in a, you know, dilapidated field house with a bunch of other field assistants and had a phenomenal time. And we did genetic analysis as well as nest watches. And that was kind of my introduction to I making air quotes, can't see it, but to, to real biology. Um, you know, I had, I wasn't in a classroom anymore. I, I was doing it. Um, and so I ended up staying on with him for about a year, just continuing some of the genetic analysis through the winter. Um, the questions we were trying to answer, we were looking at cooperative breeding. And one of the things that acorn woodpeckers do is that the siblings, last year's siblings essentially raise this year's chicks. And what we were looking at was genetic relatedness. Were they full siblings? Were they cousins? How did they help? Um, why weren't the parents helping? Were there more chicks involved if more siblings were there? So there were really interesting questions that we were trying to answer. Um, but what I discovered while I was there was that I liked talking about it more than I liked doing it. <laughs> so, you know, if if I couldn't be happy hiking through fields of wildflowers in Carmel, California, studying birds and answering interesting scientific questions, that sort of made me wonder if perhaps field work or lab work um, weren't really the path that I wanted to go down. Yeah. And so, you know, from there, I sort of had a a, a pause and I, I really reevaluated what I, I thought I wanted to do. And then I took a huge detour. Um, I ended up in law. I, I thought environmental law might be something that that would interest me. So I took the LSATs and I moved to Chicago and I got a job working in a, um, a, a big law firm. I, I was hired for environmental law, but within about a week, they transferred me to pharmaceutical litigation. <laughs> Uh, because of the science background, which was not something that I was interested in or passionate about or, you know, any of those things. So I did that for two years um, to make enough money to pay then for my master's degree in science education. So at that point, I kind of, it was a, a means to an end. And I realized what I wanted to do was talk about science, was explain these things ask questions and come up with answers, but, but really be working with, with biology, um, mm. and, and with kids. So that was my, my two year detour in Chicago. And then my then boyfriend now husband, um, wanted to move back to New York. So I looked at master's programs here in New York, ended up getting my master's degree from teacher's college, um, in 2008. Yeah. And so from there, did you go right to your current school or did you have a yep. pathway someplace else? Yeah. So you went right into Bay Ridge right from right from there. Yeah. So I interviewed at a lot of different schools and I interviewed at public schools, at private schools, at charter schools, um, middle schools, high schools, really all, <laughs> all, all five boroughs. I mean, I, I was all over the place. And what it boiled down to was the current school, Bay Ridge Prep, where I am, their 
philosophy is a little bit different than a lot of schools. And it really, it spoke to me. Um, so we, we work with students who, some students have diagnosed learning disabilities, um, but the, the primary goal of the school is emotional intelligence. It's helping kids be nice, good people. And doing that obviously through, through teaching, through content, but really through forming relationships with kids. And, and that, that spoke to me as the type of educator that I want to be, um, recognizing that every kid is capable. You just have to find the way to communicate with them, the way to reach them and make the content approachable to them. And that's my job as a teacher, but I get to experience it with them each and every day. Um, there's not a sort of set standard curriculum that is required to get through. I mean, obviously AP bio has, <laughs> has the curriculum document and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but the goal of the school is really to help kids get that joy and excitement and passion that I come to the table with already. Um, and that just, that, that spoke to me as a first year teacher and it continues to this day. I've never looked, I've never thought about teaching anywhere else. Um, I, I really love where I am. Mm. Yeah. So uh, it's a, I, I like the, there's always one of those fun things I, I find when I talk to other teachers about like finding the fit <laughs> yeah. between like what they want and, you know, the school that they are happiest in. Um, and I think it's a, it's always he interesting when you can articulate that. I don't know that I, I'm great at articulating <laughs> why I like, I mean, I love the kids I work with um, and there's a lot of pieces in there uh, that are the reason why I fit there. But it's nice that you had that from the interview process on. You had a philosophy match and that was a great, a great fit for that reason. Yeah, it really, I, you know, when you say interview and I sort of chuckle, it wasn't even an interview. It was a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that was my first clue that this was going to be a different, a different type of, of learning environment. You know, most of the teachers are, still learning. You know, we would say we're all still students. Um, professional development isn't this like box that we have to check off annually. It's something exciting. We learn from each other. We sit in on each other's classes. The headmaster of the school still teaches and he's still learning and he'll come to my classes and he'll, you know, he'll talk about epigenetics because he read something about it in the New York Times and he wants to say what he knows, but he wants to learn what I know. And he wants to get the students involved because we're all one, one learning community, which is just really nice. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that you can articulate that as a, as examples of that. Um, Cause I think that, you know, you will hear, you know, not to, not to sound trite, but it sounds like platitudes sometimes from, yeah. <laughs> from school leaders about, you know, we're all learners or, you know, those types of things. But it's one thing to say those things. It's another thing to say here as examples of how it's not just words. It's not just a, a paper mission statement that's posted up around the school. These are the actions that underlie um, this philosophy. And here are examples of how it is. Um, I often call that mission, um, the mission is transparent and obvious yeah. and therefore mm -hmm. when something goes awry, like if something comes up in your school, I'm sure through the lens of that mission, it helps you make decisions about directions to go. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, yeah. I, 
I think that it's great. nice. It's nice to have the overarching philosophy um, because then that overlays into into classes, like you were saying. You know, if you're if I'm teaching a topic or if I'm working with a student and the student, you know, doesn't do their homework or doesn't pass a test or to t- you know to take it down to the the daily like the finer grain size, the mission is still that umbrella. I'm still able to say, okay, you didn't do your homework. Let's talk about why. Was the assignment too hard for you? Was it overwhelming? And that prevented you from even starting the task? Or did you just have a track meet? Yeah. You know, let's, <laughs> let's talk about it and figure it out and figure out a way to help. If that means I'm going to sit at lunch with you and do it, cool. You know, if you didn't pass a test that I wanted you to pass today, can you pass it by Friday? Let's figure out how to get you to learn this material, how to get you to figure out what's going on. If it has to be on your timetable versus mine, you're still learning it. Hmm. Um, and that flexibility, that freedom, that mission of the school lets me teach in the way that I want to. That's cool. All right. I think that you've you've brought into the idea of the, the, the ethos of the school that you have. And one of the <laughs> things that I found when I was looking around at your school is that you helped co-design this science research and design course, uh, which yes. I believe it said it was like you have to apply in your mm-hmm. school to take this class. So it's not just like, oh, we're signing up for classes. I'm going to put this down on a piece of paper. You have to apply as a student to get into the, into this thing. So what what is this course and you know how does this how did it come about and what does it look like when you help your students engage in science research? So the course, um, I've started the course with another teacher at the school, um, Natasha Hazel, and we we started it because we went to a workshop on designing science research courses. It was uh, an email chain that went around, I believe it was through NISIS, which is the New York State Association of Independent Schools, um, and along the vein of being lifelong learners, anytime opportunities are presented, we have the chance to go. So Natasha and I decided we should attend this workshop and see what it was all about. And what we saw were kids doing authentic research. And yes, these are kids, these are high school students, and they're not doing research at the level of graduate students, except that they kind of are. <laughs> and, I, and I think that was a big wake-up call for us in that we, we talk about students as being capable learners and every student is capable of doing anything given the right tools. And we realized we just had to give them the tools. So we started this course and it's a three-year sequence. And for the first year, really what students are being introduced to is the scientific method um, in its messiest forms possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, generally when we teach the scientific method, the step, we talk about the steps that, you know, scientists go through and they, a question and a hypothesis and, you know, the poster that's on every classroom wall. But what we do in our, our intro to science research the first year is we talk about all of the messy intricacies and nuances and problems that can arise. So we have students look at a current research article and then we say, okay, so let's backtrack. What was the question they started with? Um, How do we ask a testable question? What is data analysis? What is data? What are our statistical tests? And, you know, we dive into primary literature and we do a lot of work with data just sort of in the public domain. Um, And students really get a sense of 
how complicated these questions can be, even if the answers are really simple. So, you know, when we teach, we often talk about, you know, you'll say a sentence and that sentence could be the culmination of a life's worth of work. <laughs> and, and so we talk about what that life was. We, we do a lot of Googling of scientists and researchers and what their, their daily lives are and what their, their field sites or their lab work and, and really getting into it. And then hopefully by the end of that year, our students are asking their own questions. So we spend almost a full year getting them to ask the research question that they then get to spend the next two years trying to answer. Mm. Um, so then we have them fill out IRB proposals, institutional review board proposals. We bring in experts to sit on a panel and help them go through experimental design. Um, this past year, we had a bunch of students interested in psychological type questions. So we really focused our panel on trying to uh, help those students figure out how to preserve confidentiality, how to conduct interviews, how to deal with issues that might arise. Um, hmm. And and then we spend the next you know year and a half helping them do the research, connecting with people in the field or gathering data from whatever those sources might be. Um, and then at the end, they write it up. So they write a full journal article, and we publish it in our our annual proceedings of the science research class. And and they, I was going to say they feel like scientists, but they are. Yeah. They they are. So um, I'm going to come back to something from earlier. But so that publication, can I access that? Is it a digital thing that's up there, or is it a print source? It is. It is both. Yeah. Um, we print them because. I know it hurts the trees, but the kids really like to hold it in their hands. Um, and we also have it on the on our school website. So we have, I think, the four years worth of students have completed the course. So we have four years worth of of their publications. That's very cool. And so the kids also now, now that you've done this, have the ability to look and see uh, exemplars of what past students have done. It's true. And it tends to up the ante every year. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to go back to your beginning part um, and tell you exactly what I wrote down. Uh, you said scientific method. I wrote down the word scientific method. And the word I wrote afterwards was yuck. Um, <laughs> because I think that like I, I'm growing to hate that those two words put together in order. Now, I love the way you described it. I love the fact that you described deconstructing it and asking the different questions. But like to me, that phrase, the scientific method, oh, like it's just what you put on the wall. And it's like, no, <laughs> I don't put it on the wall. But uh, I guess my question is, is that um, is there a do the kids come in with a preconceived notion that there's like a set of steps that people go through or um, do you like present it right off the bat as this like totally messy thing? And I realize we have to have words to describe something. So I'm I'm going to concede that that's OK. But like how <laughs> how is it what's the process of getting students past sort of the noun of scientific method to understand the verb of scientific method to to get into that concept? Well, and I think that's exactly why I do use the term Yeah, because they come to us with it. No matter, even if these students are coming through my school, through Barrage Prep, kindergarten, through eighth grade, they come to me as freshmen, they still have it. It's in their textbooks. It's in the vernacular. There's, there's no way to avoid having students come into my class with an idea of what that is. And so I'm very deliberate about using the term and then 
scratching out the term mm. or changing their perception of what that method is. Um, because that method really looks different to everybody. Um, I One thing that I'm hoping to do in my classes more next year is sort of a sketch notes mentality, but that's something that I do a lot with the scientific method, particularly because I like to draw arrows from one thing to the next, back to the first, now to the fifth and around and curve it and, and show them that it's not linear. Um, you know, they have this idea and I can't change how they come to me, but I absolutely can hammer home every single day that that idea is not the real world. Yeah. And I was at a, a workshop earlier this summer and we were looking at some examples of resources of scientific method, which is probably why it's so visceral for me now. Yeah. <laughs> but, yep. but like I was reading these documents about the scientific method and it, they completely lost the the thread of the background research that goes into like the whole question formulation mm-hmm. hypothesis hypothesis revision and design component it almost looked like you know from these documents like oh we saw this thing oh i had a question i made this <laughs> prediction and then i ran this lab and like the the i mean that right there that might be the first 3 years of your graduate work <laughs> exactly you know? oh absolutely and of our 3 year course that's at least the first year and a half yeah you know, students come in and on their you mentioned the application on the application they say i want to study you know the goldilocks zone of planets I'm like okay well, let's talk about what that actually means. Before you ask that question, why don't you go to Google Scholar, pull up five articles that you probably don't have access to, but I will get you access to, and then read them. And they kind of look at me and like, this article's 40 pages. Mm-hmm. Let's work through it and I'll help you work through it. But you can't ask the question. You can't design the experiment without doing that. Um, and they're often that's a a real frustrating point for them is that amount of background research. But once they've done it, they understand the value of it. And that's, I think, a huge value added to the course. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those funny things is like, as you said, 40 pages, I literally just got a, um, an article that's out to preview right now, uh, just because of a, I'm on a curriculum team working with something and I had asked a question. And so the person who's working on this in the field said, oh, we'll send you this paper because I think it'll help, you know, fill in some of the background and some of the newer things that we're working on. And I got it and I was like, oh, wow, this is 40 pages. Like I was <laughs> <laughs> like, I had the exact opposite reaction. I was like, yeah, it's a 40 page journal article to, to come through. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to learn from and to be excited about and to delve into those figures and and sometimes with students, I'll take all of those 40 pages. And again, I'm sorry to the rainforests but I will print them out and we'll hang them on the wall, mm-hmm. all four pages. And then we'll annotate them visually and we'll, we'll draw arrows from where the text refers to a figure and we'll highlight in different colors. And at the end, it looks like a mess, but you, it's visual how much interacting you can do with one document, with one article. Yeah. And I, it's when I was at a, I did a fellowship a few years ago in a lab and I remember talking with the PI of the lab and he, one of the things that he was making a point to me about sort of the journal club is that he's always amazed at how uncritical or lack of critical lens that people have on published papers. 
mm-hmm. and him from his standpoint, you know, he's been doing this for years and, and he's trained a lot of people through when he gets a journal article, he reads it, but he's always like questioning every single aspect of it. Like, yeah. where did this data come from and how did this work? And that sort of thing. And he said that one of the things that he, he sees in a lot of particularly new students is that they read it and they read it like, oh, wow, this paper says blank. Mm-hmm. And they don't look for the holes in the statement. Um, and I realized that if they don't know how to break down a journal article before they get there, they're just learning when they get to grad school how to break down a journal article. Right. So you can't both learn how to break down a journal article and then be super critical of it. I think our job is to help them learn how to break down scientific work, you know, early on in in advanced high school and early in college so that if they do pursue this and they get to those higher levels, then when they're working on advanced degrees, they are already at that point in their toolbox to say, oh, I'm not just going to take this at face value. I'm now ready to learn those critical skills of asking questions or challenging or finding the holes so that I can build on this research. And I'm going to argue that that goes beyond science. I want them to be critical consumers of all of the information that they're receiving. You know, whether we're talking about a New York Times article that happens to be in the science section or any other section, if you're talking about, you know, a a news story that comes out, be a critical consumer and, and of the information. What does that mean? Look at your sources, you know, choose sources that you, that are reputable. Mm. Yeah. And even, I, I mean, I think that it's easy for me to look at a, you know, New York Times article or an Atlantic article or something like that and find places to be critical very easily. Um, the question is, are we practicing that enough with our students? I I think the answer is no. I, I think that we should be doing that so much more than we are. Um, it's one of the biggest skills that I think we can teach kids. You know, they're not going to, if a student leaves my class and they don't remember the order of the stages of mitosis, so be it. I, I don't feel as though that memorized piece of information is going to serve them as well in the real world, in the post-academic world, as if I can teach them to be a critical consumer of information. If I can teach them how to participate in a discussion, how to look at facts and evaluate them and then use them to formulate an argument. I, I think that's a much, much more useful and transferable skill. Hmm. All right. Well, now you've brought up the stages of mitosis, and I know that that's <laughs> beyond the scope of the AP um, from my old from my old course description. Um, and so, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to shift our gears into uh, into AP yeah. land a little bit and um, and ask you about. Uh, like your sort of journey, because uh, this past year you were my boss um, as, <laughs> as the AP question leader on uh, on our question that I was I was helping to be a reader on, and you were the question leader of. So, uh, what was your path uh, into this AP community, and how do you get from being like, you know, uh, a lowly acorn or first year, second year <laughs> reader to to being a a question leader at the AP? Well, for starters, let me say there is no lowly acorn. Uh, every single person there is doing the exact same job, right? Yes. And I, I think that, that, you know, I'm I'm remembering my acorn, my rookie year. And I, I applied to be a reader, honestly, because I didn't appreciate the AP curriculum. I was teaching it and I... I don't want to say that I was negative toward it, but I didn't understand it. Mm. I didn't understand the scope of what we were asking kids to do. And I felt like the free response questions, 
I felt like some of them were unfair mm. um, because I didn't understand how they were written or how I was supposed to teach or how I was encouraged to teach my students. Um, and so I applied to be a reader because I felt like the more I know, chances are the more I would appreciate what was happening and the better teacher I would be. So I applied almost with a like, throw my hands up in the air, maybe going there will help me <laughs> understand and appreciate this course. And I mean, a thousandfold, that is what happened. I, I now firmly stand behind the design of the questions and the, the free responses. And man, do I think that the, the grading process and what we do in Kansas City is, we have so much respect for what students are doing and for each other. I, I just, you know, I, I've seen behind the curtain and I, I have the utmost respect for the work that happens there, which means I can go back and convey that to my students. Mm -hmm. I now don't feel like the questions are unfair. I feel like it's our job as a classroom community to figure out how best to prepare for it. Um, it's not an us versus them. It's a, all right, this is our task. Let's figure out how we can all get there. Um, and so I started reading my third year as an AP teacher because that was the first chance that I could. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been back to Kansas City every year since. <laughs> I I can't honestly can't imagine missing a year. I I sort of joke that I literally timed my pregnancy so that I could be at the read every single year. Um, I I had my kid in August, so that was I was able to be pregnant one year and leave him at home the next year, so it was perfect. And I just have continued to you know, to, to do every task that was asked. And I think that I, I, I guess I don't really have an eloquent way of explaining my, my rise through the AP world <laughs> other than I really have appreciated every opportunity that I have had there. And I think that that eagerness um, and willingness to work and, and all of those things was was recognized somewhere along the way. So I, you know, I, I was a reader for, I don't even know, a bunch of years, and then tapped as a table leader. And I, you know, to, to quote our dear friend, and I know you have, you interviewed her, Jen Fannerstill, mm -hmm. it's the table leaders that make it work. Um, and, you know, this last year as a question leader, I was certainly more visible than in previous years. But that just was me standing up in front of a room and me being there for a couple more days than everybody else. You know, I didn't have any additional expertise necessarily. I just did different tasks than everybody. Mm. But mm. the work that was really being done was the readers and, and the table leaders who were training and helping and answering questions and interacting with those student responses every single day. Yeah, I felt like the process this year felt super smooth. So, um, and I was, I don't know how to attribute that because this was literally my second year. So it could be literally, you know, just I went there last year and deer in headlights, you know, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing. Right. And this year I had expectations of how it all worked. And so therefore it was a lot smoother. Um, but I felt, and it also can be a difference in question because every question is different. Um, last year, Definitely. this past year, I was on one of the, the long FRQs and the year before I was on three, four, five. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so it was, that's a different task 
reading multiple versus reading just one. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it felt it felt very different this year. And I don't know what to attribute that to, um, although to say there's a lot of factors that are involved. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt the same way. I, you know, this was also my first year in the question leader, um, at least question leader on the op role. But I felt as though it was one of the smoothest reads. Um, I do see behind the curtain quite a bit. I was in the CR office quite a bit. And they were also very calm, very, um, you know, everything felt like it was running very smoothly, I think. And that trickles down. You know, we know as teachers, if we're running a lab and we're stressed about it, that stress goes down and our students feel it and they're more nervous about it and it doesn't go as well. Um, I think you know, leadership plays a huge role in that. But I I also think that a lot of work is done during the year that sets up a smooth read. Mm. You know, so you were saying earlier, Kansas City is this two week bubble, and we fly in and we do our work, and then we fly out and that bubble just kind of remains. But for a lot of people, this is a year long process. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of the work that has been done before we get there sets us up by the time we get there for a really smooth, um, a smooth read. Yeah. And you're talking about your application process. I think my, mine was a little bit different because they read before I went there. Um, like I was getting text messages from people who were at the read asking me why I wasn't there. And I was like, <laughs> I've never been there, but I had a couple of teachers who were texting me from the read, like, you're supposed to be here. Why aren't you here? And then literally I had Jen say, you need to apply. <laughs> You should apply and be here. And, yes. and then as like as an acorn, I'm there and like Jen was checking in on me at the table. So, you know, not your typical <laughs> uh, not your typical path, but at the same time, I think there are probably more stories like that than you would think. And not necessarily with Jen, obviously, but I think people apply because they know other people who do. I think the communities in general, you know, I, I know other AP teachers in other subjects and their communities aren't like ours. Mm. You know, our Facebook community is really strong and supportive, Um, the College Board, their community as well. And I think that, you know, it's through interactions like that. It's finding people who become your friends, your mentors, your virtual colleagues. They're the ones who encourage people to apply. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't I don't think anyone voluntarily. I mean, I guess I suppose I did. But the majority of people don't say, I don't know anybody who does this let me volunteer my time to go to Kansas city during my summer vacation and grade thousands of essays. Yeah. You know, on paper that doesn't sound all that appealing. It's the connections that make it worthwhile and valuable. Yeah. And the people at my school, when I tell them I'm looking forward to it, they really do look at me like I have (laughs) three heads. Like what's wrong. And that's why we have to go to nerd village where everybody else understands us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the the funny thing is, is even before I applied and I talked to a, a bunch of people who had done it, even a couple of people I know who did it once and it was like not for them. They were like, oh, yeah, you absolutely need to do it once. Like and these yeah. are people who are like hated it, don't want to ever do it again. But they saw the value in it, um, even if it doesn't fit what they feel like. They don't need to do that every year to get that experience. They went, they saw how it works. They appreciate it. But it's not for them to sit in that room and score. Right. And I think, you know. Even like you were saying, it's different grading three, four, five, grading the cluster questions versus one of the long questions. Everybody has a different way of of working, of interacting with the material, and grading isn't for everybody. You know, for some people that's really tedious and it doesn't benefit them. 
Whereas for other people, I mean, I look forward to this every year. I, it's sad that it's so far from now. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we've, we're in this world. And I think for me, the biggest thing I took out of this read, aside from like the, you know, I think the best thing about it is you stew in these questions <laughs> with these prompts <laughs> and you see how students are responding to it. And you think about how your kids do this. Or I think for me, I think, how could I get if this response that misses the mark in front of me? How could I translate that if this was my kid in my room so that I could help them not make the same mistake? I think that's one of those things I do. And that comes back to how do you translate the course design into curriculum in your room? Like what are the tasks you ask them to do um, and that sort of thing? And I know you're listed on the college board's acknowledgments for the new CED document because Mm -hmm. I search you through there. And so what are your current thoughts on the shift that's being made here in 2019 on the AP course design? Um, I don't, I don't see it as huge shifts. I Mm -hmm. see it almost as, and I know the college board uses this word all the time, but an articulation, like a a clarification of what they had hoped we were already doing. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I see it moving toward doing as opposed to memorizing. And I think that that's something that, you know, going back 40 minutes in our talk, I think that's something that I mentioned as a goal for science in general. We want kids to do science as opposed to memorize the order of the stages of mitosis. (laughs) So I think the new curriculum document that we have, it, it forces us to do that as opposed to simply giving us the flexibility to, um, it's it's making us interact with the science. And I think that that's the goal, right? That's what being a scientist is as opposed to being a student of science. It's forcing our students to make claims, to use evidence, to justify what they're saying as opposed to just saying it. And those are challenging, difficult skills, but that's what science is. That's what the world expects of scientists. And I think that that's very fair for us to expect of students. Yeah, the the science practices definitely are much more at the forefront of the document now. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm curious to see how it's going to read, <laughs> like how people are going to translate this these documents into what they do, um, as I've been sort of mulling that over in my own work and translating them over. Um, and what is it going to look like in my classroom? Um, so you, I'm not surprised that you use articulation, reclarification, because that's how other people, particularly those who run um, like uh, summer institutes, yeah. had described it to me. The, they, they used like reorganization (laughs) you know like it's not so much it's not a redesign it's a it's a little bit of a clarification or exactly organizing in a different way yeah and I think that that's really important to to hone in on you know I think one of the one of the big things that they did obviously was reorganize into the units and you know sort of give pacing guides and and more um more help, I guess, for teachers in the day-to-day, how many days to spend teaching this topic and things like that. Um, but I think for the the veterans out there, we're not going to change what we do very much based on that. 
you know, I think if you always started teaching evolution first, you're going to continue to do that. And if you taught evolution last, you're going to continue to do that um, or not. And you're going to change and try something new, but it's not mandated. It's not a forced change in that way. I think the content itself is clarified. It's made a little bit more accessible and readable and um, clear for what teachers are meant to be teaching. But I think the biggest shift for me is that they gave us the practices a bunch of years ago and now they're saying, okay, but really, (laughs) really, you got to do this. Um, And I think that's better. I think that'll make for better teaching. It's, it'll make for better outcomes for students, which ultimately is the goal. You know, this document to me is a tool to help teachers teach better. Um, It's not a, a a huge change or a big drastic um, revision of anything. Yeah. I've been, as I said, I've been diving in as we're, you know, not that far away um, (laughs) from starting, (laughs) from, from, from getting into it. And um, you know, for me at this point, I am still in reorganization land. Um, yeah. um, and so I, as I had said on the episode that came out right before this is, um, my, my frustration is that my entire course was like organized around the essential knowledge statements, um, uh, from the, the old course. And so I am now figuring out how to not, as you said, change what I do. Like, I think I teach a pretty good advanced science course, um, that my kids take yeah, AP biology at the end of the year. Um, yep. And I like the, I, I hesitate to say that I like what I do. I like the direction we've been taking the course. Um, Cause I, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think we're still very much on a journey of figuring out how to teach an advanced science course that is exciting and engaging and still supports and helps students access the AP. Uh, mm-hmm. but also um, takes advantage of the resources that we have at our disposal being outside of Boston and having access to all these labs and these collaborators. And, um, you know, every school is different. And we have the ability to connect to really great research and opportunities for students and partnerships with labs and that sort of thing. And so we tell stories in that way. And I don't want to get away from that. Um, I want to continue to do that and help students access the AP um, while we're doing that. Oh, and I don't think anything in this new document says that that is not a phenomenal way to teach your course. I think everything in this document supports exactly what you're doing. I think you know, the hard part you're going to run into is if you're trying to use the the personal progress checks and the, the released questions, you know, are they going to fit perfectly with the narrative way that you're teaching it? But I don't think that, I think you should 100% continue to take advantage of those amazing resources and show them to your students and, and teach, if you teach a great biology. Oh, you disappeared again. I'm not moving. There you What's go. going on? <laughs> All right. Let's if you teach a great biology course, you started to say it, it faded away. Yeah. If you teach a great biology course, the exam will be accessible to your students. Yeah. Nothing about this document changes that. Yeah. And I've said that um, my my work on reorganization, the fact that we have both the um, task verbs <laughs> mm-hmm. and the uh, modeling of how the FRQ is going to work 
yeah. and the upcoming questions. If like I've spent so much time on those two things, um, <laughs> that's that's what I've been using as sort of my baseline as I've been doing my work. Like, right? Am I, I think that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's what's going to take the phenomenal course that you teach and connect it to the exam. And that's that's been what my translation has been. Um, that yeah. like it really kind of doesn't matter what we teach. Um, like not to say that it doesn't matter, but in my school, I teach AP, AP biology as a second year course. So my students have already taken a baseline biology course. They have had that exposure to content. They've learned a little bit of practices because we have some of those NGSS practices, you know, mm -hmm. highlighted throughout there, but they're young students. They don't know how to, um, you know, use computational skills at a very advanced level when they're a freshman or a sophomore in high school. But now as a junior and se or senior, they've taken more courses, they're deeper. So now we can really get into some statistical tools. Um, we can get into more nuance. Uh, we can get into the fuzzy areas of science. And so, you know, I, there's part of me that feels like, and I, we almost actually went this direction. You mentioned that your uh, high school teacher did not call the course AP Biology. Um, before the original redesign back in 2012, I think we were on the verge of, of possibly throwing out the words AP uh, yeah. because we were like heading in this area where we just wanted to do research. Like we wanted to run yeah. like a advanced biology course that was really focused in on research and not be wedded to this like content, you know, heavy memorization, heavy course. And we had been looking in, we had actually met with some IB teachers. We like, we were really exploring and had there not been a redesign in 2012, I, I legitimately think that our school may have gone away from AP biology, you know, within the next couple of years. Cause we were just, we were over teaching a content heavy course. So we were thrilled with the redesign and we moved it into what you were saying, engaging in the science practicing, continually cutting content, really letting the students engage in that process. And so um, I do feel that we reach a lot of different types of learners though. And not every student who comes out of that first year bio course had the greatest experience and really grasped the concepts well and, or didn't, like lose all their misconceptions. So we do need to scaffold some content in to have the context for them to learn the science. And so that's sort of the push and pull that we have. Um, and it's one of the reasons I like having the AP curriculum there because it actually is a grounding so that I don't turn it into a course that's so inaccessible that a student couldn't come in and like strengthen their basic biological understanding and their basic concepts um, in the context. I think that's exactly the goal of the document. Yeah. It's the scaffold on which you can overlay the course that you want to teach, but that scaffold allows access, yeah. right? The goal, if every student, if we're hoping that every student is capable of interacting with the content, we have to lay that groundwork. And that's what I think the college board is really trying to do is say, all right, here's here's the scaffold. Here's a baseline. Here's some things that you should probably teach and some ways you should probably teach it. And we're going to give you more resources and try to make it more accessible to you as a teacher so that you can spend more time trying to figure out how to make it then accessible to your students. Yeah. All right. So I think, and so who do I blame more if it doesn't work? Is it Barry's fault or is it Ryan Laxon? Like, I just want to know. I would probably oh, Barry. I would definitely. 
All right. Yeah. So if this is a disaster, if this is a dumpster fire, we're just going to blame Barry. All right. I just want to make sure that we put that out there in the in the audio world for the dozens of people who listen, um, most of whom are absolutely Barry Eyed. Yeah. Totally Barry Eyed's fault. All right. That's good. I we think we need to have some somebody to blame when this all. If we're going to throw someone under the bus, it's got to be. Barry. Okay. Good. <laughs> now, this is now going to be the test to see if Barry's actually listening to my episodes. Yep, love you, Barry. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's start toward, heading towards the exit. What are you looking forward to in your classroom in the upcoming years? And I actually, I didn't ask as a department leader. I don't know how many courses you teach. Uh, like obviously, the research course is that the only course you teach, or what? Are, what are you looking forward to in your classroom or classrooms in the upcoming years? So this upcoming year, I am teaching um, one section of freshman biology. I am teaching AP biology, the science research course, um, and then two sort of half credit courses. One is an animal behavior elective, mm -hmm. and the other is a course that is as of yet untitled, um, something to do with science-themed cases that have gone before the Supreme Court sure. and how rulings have impacted science. Um, I'm looking for a more eloquent title than that, though. So if any of your listeners have suggestions, feel free to let me know. <laughs> wow. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to interact with new students. I, I love teaching the freshman bio because students are excited and I can still get that wonder and joy and, and spark in their eyes. Um, I'm really excited for my new crop of AP students. I have some really, really motivated kids who have been um, just chomping at the bit. They've been emailing me all summer. Hey, did you see this article? Can we talk about this next year? Um, sending me pictures of worms that they have found on vacation. Um, just some really, really interested, passionate students, which I think is going to make for a, a pretty fun class. That's exciting. Yeah, I've been I've been yeah. thinking about the kids as well. <laughs> yeah. They're the reason we do it, right? Yeah. And this actually upcoming year I'm gonna have a very different crop. I have I've the fewest honors bio classes I've ever taught. I'm only out of one. Um, and hmm. part of the way we've reorganized our class, we're changing our schedules, um, is that I am actually teaching um uh, a lot of AP lab. Um, I teach lab every other day. Um, and so I actually have four sections of AP lab, but they only take place in two periods. So like I have a, a blue lab and a gold lab that's in a period and then I another period I have a blue and a gold. So I'm going to see four different lab groups and then two different class groups of AP. And then I have my one section of honors bio, which is mostly freshmen. It's a mix of freshmen and sophomores. So um, I'm actually not going to have many of those younger students this year. Uh, oh, interesting. And so some of those lab students, you don't teach them for class, you just teach them for lab? Correct. This is what we're trying this year. So it's um, it's the only way they could do it in our new schedule. Uh, they could not. We used to have it so that they were linked. Mm -hmm. um, but we're rearranging our schedule and we actually are getting a ton of extra lab time. Um, nice. So, yeah. And yeah, it's kind of like a there's part of it that's like a maddening puzzle, but there's also part of it that's like, I am a, like a puzzle solving uh, person. <laughs> so trying to figure out how to disaggregate your labs from the class and to run them as a separate class when you have more time is a, it's an, it's been an interesting curriculum puzzle that has taken a big, a big uh, chunk of my, uh, my mental energy this summer. Yeah, but that's one where if you put in the mental energy now, the students will benefit from it all year long. Yeah. Which 
sounds like a, a win for them, which is is always the ultimate goal. And that's you know that's I think the the goal is that um, you know for me it's it really I want them to be making sense of things, but I do think I have to have an underlying coherent like story that I'm telling. And if there's no coherent story to what we're doing because we ran out of time or I have these like four extra days or, you know, like if I haven't planned in, I think the biggest thing I've been concerned about is how does like processing time fit into this schedule? Like we Mm. do something and then the students have to think about something. And in the past, I would probably do that in a class period, but now Mm -hmm. the labs are this separate thing. And so, so yeah. I have to like some of those lab periods are going to be like literally, all right, let's talk about what we did in the baseline lab. Let's plan the follow up lab. And that's what we're doing in a lab period, which right. is, you know, it's just a very, it's a, a different way of thinking about it. And I laid it out and I've got, you know, it'll be, it'll be super messy, but it's draft one of this and it'll be good. It is messy. Yeah. So. You got no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm totally okay with that too. Um, and so I'm 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 looking forward to the net result is I'm looking forward to how this extra time opens up space um, and what we can possibly do with that, um, particularly in the narratives. But we're yeah, I it's it I, there is going to be um, I use the word anxiety. There's definitely a little bit of anxiety in this anticipation buildup um, that is going to make me just like, I just want to get to the school year so that we can yeah. experience it. And that will hopefully tamp down like the unknown. And there's nothing that's going to prepare you for the unknown. It's just, right. you, you just got to do it. You can only prepare so much for it and then you get into it. So, uh, well, this sounds like a follow-up conversation is needed at the Flying Saucer next year in Kansas City to find out how it went. Absolutely. I'm totally on board for that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, when you're not teaching, um, it sounds like travel plays a big role, but when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Um, so I am a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to be running two fall marathons this year. I'm going to run Berlin and also New York. Wow. I don't have a spring one on the docket yet, but I'm, like you said, love to travel. So I'm willing to to head somewhere if anyone has any good spring marathon um, locations. But running sort of keeps me, keeps me sane, keeps me grounded. I listen to a lot of books on tape while I run, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do martial arts, um, second degree black belt. So I like to do that as well. I claim that I'm an amateur wildlife photographer. That <laughs> is just something that's fun and helps me decorate my classroom. Um, and I'm a mom to an 11 month old, just learned to crawl and is keeping me on my toes. Little baby boy. Wow. Wow. Two marathons in the fall. Oh. Sounds nuts. Um, I, great. Yeah, I see you on Strava there. I, I know you're in the group. <laughs> yep. <Biohazard> Strava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm the one who runs 50 miles a week and doesn't race marathons. <laughs> You should. There's something great about marathons. Yeah, I've I've done I've done seven of them. Um, but oh. I burned out on them a couple of years ago. Um, so I I just haven't been racing the last couple of years because I just the mental I got mentally burned out on racing. So um, I've uh, I actually just signed up to do pacing for the Hartford Half Marathon, which I did last okay. I did that last year, and it was fun. It was like a it was the first race I had done in like two years, um, but it wasn't a race. It was different. It was, um, it was kind of like coaching and. I was going to say, you've got the teaching aspect in there of, of supporting and helping and guiding. Yeah. And, and it was very much, I felt very much in service to the running community. That's the best way of describing it. 
Like yeah. I was running with these people. They had a goal. Um, for me to run a 140 half is not super arduous. Um, mm-hmm. and, but to run uh, 732s every mile for 13 point ends up being two because Hartford runs long. Um, but to, to like, <laughs> to hit your numbers and like constant, yes. like I don't run even, I'm not an even racer. Like I, well, you got it. If you're pacing, so if you're so. pacing, you're doing, so it was a different running challenge and mm-hmm. it was in service to others. And like when you finish something and you run and people come up and they're like thanking you and they're like, it was like, I felt like I was able to give back to, as you said, I like, I love to run and it, it does a lot of good things for me. Um, it was nice to give back to that running community. Um, and I felt like I was in service to a community that has been wonderful to me as an adult. <laughs> so um, I was looking forward to doing it again. So that'll be what I have. That is my only fall race that I think I've got signed up for. Uh, but you know, you never know. I get a little, I get a little stir crazy and maybe I'll run a late fall marathon, but um, I got, I got hey, the yeah. base for it right now, but I, I don't know that I want to, those twenties, man, I don't know about running those twenties. You only have to do a couple of them. And as someone who has greatly benefited from pacers, I, I much appreciate the service that, that you do. I ran actually one in Kansas City a couple of years ago while we were there. Yeah. And it was one of the hardest, I don't know why, it was just one of the hardest halves I have ever done. And boy, that 150 pacer, if I didn't stay with him, I wasn't finishing. Like literally, he got me through it. It was it was very much appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I had never I had never really thought too much about it, but a good buddy of mine has paced for Hartford for years and they had a hole last year and he's like, You in half marathon shape? <laughs> and I was like and I was I think my answer was like almost. <laughs> I could be. Uh, yeah. So I basically had six weeks last year to ramp up to to run that. And I'm like more like I'm a s I'm I pretty much run a one thirty four. Like I like that's sort of my 140 is within the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And you know, I've gotten down to like closer. I think my fastest is like just over 131, you know, right in that 131 ballpark, but I've hit 134 like half a dozen times. Um, and I've done that in training for marathons. Like that's what I run when I pace it. Um, so mm-hmm. to back off a little bit, wasn't super hard, but I'm older and you never know, like every year I wonder about where the wheels are going to fall off. So <laughs> Well, it sounds like you hit your goal, yeah. so that's, you helped people get there as well. Yeah. All right. So before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Um, one thing I have wondered, actually, have you changed your teaching practice based on doing this podcast? Like, has talking to other teachers changed Yeah, you? 100%. Um, yeah, I think it has... It has given me a lot of things. One, it's given me a community, um, like more so than, you know, the online communities, which we have a wonderful community, but um, having deep conversations with people over these years has really developed relationships with a a couple of very trusted colleagues. Um, I actually was working on a document for something and I emailed it out to uh, to six people um, who are friends of mine, five of whom are people who I've recorded with on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. they're all AP teachers and I wanted their feedback on something that I had put together. And I trusted them. They were different. And I, I intentionally wanted to do it in a way that it was like, I didn't want to hit like six people who are suburban, <laughs> you know, right, right. teachers who teach in subjects like me. I wanted one or two of them, but I also wanted ones who taught in 
different with different populations with different size classes and in different in ideas and because i have built this network i'm able to do that now um and then i think that it's given me the opportunity to um see the possibilities of what teaching can look like from talking to different people um it's expand like my world is not the classrooms of my building it is a much Mm -hmm. broader swath of classrooms from having people open up their classrooms through conversation. Um, and then sort of the last piece that I think it has helped me is um, I think it, it has sped up my professional development in a lot of ways. And, and an example of how that's happened would be um, my appreciation of, of the role of diversity um, in hmm. both education and in science and the idea mm-hmm. of voices and having different types of voices um, being amplified. And so when we're in a classroom and we give examples of sort of historical figures, you know, we always talk about, or at least one of the things I've been always cognizant about is not just having a whole bunch of old white men <laughs> as my examples um, in there. Yep. But now I have a platform where I, I get a chance to talk to teachers. Um, what is my network? Uh, what is my network literally just a whole bunch of 40-year-old something white men who I talk to? That's really easy for me to do. Or am I really right. going out and hearing from people who are new in the career, people who are veteran in the career, uh, people who teach in rural environments, in suburban environments, in, um, you know, uh, urban environments, people who teach um, Eng- a lot of English language learners. And and I, I know a lot of these people, but am I accessing them on a regular basis to inform and broaden my own perspective? And because of that, I am a different person today than I was when I started the podcast. Um, and I think that that's informed my classroom. And I, I think your your list you've invited all of us into that community. You know, whether me being interviewed or anybody who is listening, we all can have those benefits as well. Which so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, my and my hope is, and I I try not to be. Um, I think I do this in a, you mentioned science being messy. My, this podcast, you know, literally dozens of people listen to it. Um, so, so I, I, it is a little bit of a messy process and I, I'm sure I've said things that are wrong and, and it's, I hope it reflects growth and learning uh, as part of the process. I, I was, I was just going to say, but it's a process yeah. and we all as educators, chances are most of your listeners are educators. Mm-hmm. We all know and understand and appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, th- let's get to picks of the episode. Uh, we talked about a few different ones, but uh, Lisa, you've picked a really interesting one. So <laughs> um, so the news story that I am most interested in the, right now um, is a story about the Komodo dragon. So they just sequenced the genome of the Komodo dragon. And one of the the things that I find most interesting are genes that give that animal some sort of special special power. Mm-hmm. So the Komodo dragon can survive the bite of another Komodo dragon. And one of the reasons that they can do that is this unusual um, cardiovascular system. So blood clotting proteins, they have different ones than we do. And that means that when they bite each other, as opposed to bleeding out, which I believe is what would happen to the rest of us, um, they're able to clot a little bit more and fight um, pretty, pretty viciously with each other without killing each other. 
Yeah, it's it, they have a they are able to evade the anticoagulant effects of their own saliva. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like, that's, that's fascinating. Just super yeah. cool. Um, and so you know, like I mentioned with the platypus, I like animals that quote break rules. I like animals that can do different things, and I just think that teaching with fun examples like this is what it's all about. So, yeah. And- you picked an article that is in nature, but it's also an open source nature article. So we have, link, I'm going to link the primary source article in my show notes. Chose it for partly for that yeah, reason. Yeah, it's an excellent example. I like giving, getting access to the, the primary sources. Yeah. All right. Well, my pick is uh, sort of my aspirational read for the end of the summer. So hopefully when this episode comes out, I am on to this book because I have picked this book and I've, uh, and it's, it's hopefully my end of summer read, which probably means I'm going to read the first 200 pages and then September's going to hit and I will still be reading it when NABT rolls around because I read about five <laughs> pages a night uh, <laughs> and, and then fall asleep once school year starts. But uh, it is called The Ghost Map, uh, the story of London's most terrifying epidemic and how it changed science, cities, and the modern world. And it is our, uh, it is the classic cholera London story. Um, and it's by Stephen Johnson and it has gotten amazing reviews. Um, I actually heard it talked about on, uh, this podcast will kill you, uh, which is a great podcast about, um, uh, infectious diseases and that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's, I, I am a big fan of the Dr. John Snow story. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Buffalo case study, on, yes. on I think it's called the there's the blue plague um, mm-hmm. and I just I love this story I think it's a great example of uh, you know gathering evidence um, having the existing understanding of science be challenged by somebody based off of evidence um, and I, I'm just like I've started reading this book and I was like oh yes this is a must read I need to to dive deep into this uh, to learn more about the background of this cholera epidemic in the 1850s. Well, you've sold me. I'm going to <laughs> download it and it'll be my new running book on tape. Yeah. Yeah. I am also a book on tape runner, um, but I am a mysteries and I have been re-listening to the Bosch series this summer, um, which is Harry Bosch. Oh, series. Very cool. That is my go-to, that is my go-to audiobook series. Um, that I, I love. Uh, so there, well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an awesome conversation. I feel like I've picked up so many thoughts about research and, um, how we interact with kids and, and that sort of thing. So hopefully, yeah. uh, Yeah. All right. So let me give my show credits. Uh, You can subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, You can also support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Patreons do get an early release of episodes. Um, You can also get show notes on Patreon or at lifeoftheschool.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Lisa has the most defunct of Twitter accounts, so we're not going to bother throwing that out there. But So thank you all for joining us, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.